I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, is it possible that part of America's problem is people who are too good at what they do? What broke down was the process by which a country or any community balances out that kind of overachievement uh, with, uh, with uh, the guardrails that stop people from going too far and hurting the common good. Then an argument for taking college to prison. So people who have access to educational opportunities while incarcerated are 43% less likely to recidivate. Plus, why you don't have to be smart to make good decisions. In these kinds of cases, there's a lot of information. And what people do is they're inconsistent in the way that they weight different kinds of pieces of information. That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. When he was a kid, Stephen Brill was an avid reader. And in 1964, he read a book about the recently assassinated president, John F. Kennedy. The book mentioned that Kennedy attended a high school in Connecticut called Choate. Brill lived in far Rockaway, Queens, and he had never heard of Choate, nor did he know anything about elite, costly boarding schools. Brill's parents owned a liquor store. He went to public school. They didn't have the money for prep school and they were Jewish, which in the mid-1960s was not really a tried-and-true formula for ending up in bastions of elitism. But Brill did. He found himself at Deerfield Academy in Massachusetts, which is a lot like Choate, and the headmaster told his parents that they could just pay the school whatever they could afford. Brill went on to Yale and Yale Law School, and he started to understand how the famous Old Boys Network worked. It used to matter at a Wall Street law firm if you you know, if you played on the lacrosse team with someone at, at uh, Princeton, you were more likely to get a job and then a partnership at that firm, and it wasn't necessarily based on how smart you were. But Brill saw that that way of doing things was changing. Apart from Jewish students and low-income students, women also started attending elite colleges. Stephen Brill argues that changing who attended private high schools and Ivy League colleges and law school, that had a ripple effect. But what seemed like a win, he says in his new book, Tailspin, touched off a strange phenomenon, a phenomenon in which high achievers remade industries one by one. When Brill graduated from Yale Law School, he decided to start a magazine called The American Lawyer. And it looked at law not only as a business, but as an increasingly competitive business. So I had um, a front row seat, and I also uh, was responsible for Um, a lot of the damage I'm about to describe, which is that the law firms became, you know, much, uh, much more competent because they were hiring much more competent people. Now, the good news is that meant they were hiring women, they were hiring Jews, they were even starting to hire non-whites based on their smarts. That's the good news. The bad news is that they were able to pay these people, uh, you know, so much money because there was a, a real competition for talent that they became uh, much tougher and smarter and able to defend the corporate clients who could afford to pay them. What happened, and remember, it was not just happening in the legal field, 
what happened was that a crop of brilliant lawyers helped wealthy clients and corporations gain all sorts of advantages that had never been dreamt up before. Uh, that led to exotic new feats of legal engineering, such as uh, the corporate uh, you know, takeover fight or stock buybacks or leverage buyouts, all things that turn the economy into a casino rather than a place where companies expanded, invested, um, and kept providing you know, new jobs and new opportunities for the middle class. In the process, of course, these lawyers got very rich. And Brill's magazine, The American Lawyer, fueled the competition that already existed by comparing the earnings of firms and partners along with their accomplishments. Pro bono work diminished because there was such a fight to get ahead and to stay ahead. Brill argues that this new crop of lawyers, with all their ingenuity, slowed down the wheels of government. Even though, he says, many of them were personally liberal folks who believed in the power of government. Um, In 1974, the first OSHA regulation concerning, uh, you know, job safety uh, was written. And it took less than a year to write it, and it was 10 pages long. Uh, In 2016, the last OSHA regulation that was written took over 19 years to write and was 600 pages long. Wow. That's because everyone involved hired lawyers, Mm. you know, to fight with OSHA, to contest it, to use another great American virtue, due process, (laughs) which, as I explained in the book, has also been hijacked. And, um, you know... uh, These regulations, or blocking these regulations, or delaying these regulations, is worth billions of dollars to corporations who are happy to pay Washington lawyers to do everything they can to gum up the works, and they've succeeded. But as I said, this phenomenon was not limited to the law. It was happening in finance, in media, in politics, which, like powerful forces of nature, came together to produce something unexpected and scary. But it didn't look like a storm. Everything looked really good. You know, the first time someone invented um, a derivative um, in order to finance mortgages, for example, that was seen correctly as a very smart invention that allowed mortgages to be uh, more available to uh, the middle class and and increase middle class home ownership. Mm -hmm. It just, as with many things in the tailspin, it got to be too much of a good thing. You know, one derivative became a more exotic derivative, which became a crazier derivative and a still crazier derivative until we had the crash. And all of that is the sum total of very smart people trying to achieve as much as they could. And what broke down because of uh, the dominance of money in politics and polarization, what broke down was the process by which a country or any community balances out that kind of overachievement uh, with uh, with uh, the guardrails that stop people from going too far and hurting the common good. So I guess I wonder where then, like, where do you lay the blame? Because is it, you know, a, a bank's fault, let's say, that they hired a PhD in math or physics or whatever to to come up with this derivative and then hired a PhD in computer science to, you know, come up with the algorithms that would, would uh, enshrine this in the system? Is it those people's fault? Is it the fact that 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 was all fine, but like the regulators were nowhere to be seen? I just wonder, like, was it all these things together or was something the problem? It was all these things together. And it's no one's real fault because 
you can only see this if you play the movie back in slow motion. Mm -hmm. Because if you're playing it at regular speed, it just looks like good, smart people doing good, inventive things in order to advance uh, their careers. Right. You know, uh, there are, you know, a few villains in the book. Uh, uh, Newt uh, Gingrich um, is kind of a villain because he really led the way for the kind of, you know, uncivil, uh, you know, polarized uh, politics that we had never seen. We have a contract with America. We had 330 candidates sign the contract. We put it in TV Guide as a full-page ad. We told the American people to tear it out, put it on the refrigerator door, and then if we got to be a majority, tune in on January 4th on C-SPAN and watch us keep our word. And the fact but Bernie, his ability to do that was the result of yet another uh, you know, trailblazing breakthrough, which was the advent of cameras in the Congress. Mm. You know, he used to go on, uh, you know, C-SPAN in order to make <laughs> headlines. Right. And if C-SPAN hadn't been there, he wouldn't have been able to do it. So, you know, other than that, and there are a couple of other instances like that, it's basically, you know, people doing so well in their chosen professions that uh, they're able to jump the guardrails. And, you know, whose fault it is? Well, it's obviously the fault of, uh, you know, politicians in Washington, for example, who, you know, succumb to the temptation of always uh, working for the short term, always, you know, worrying about, you know, this election and, uh, you know, denying their opponents uh, the kinds of victories that, you know, the Republicans used to always allow Democratic presidents to have, uh, you know, victories. And, you know, the Democrats always used to let Republican presidents have victories when it came to, you know, major bipartisan legislation. That just stopped. Hmm. We can't even pass a simple increase in the gas tax to keep the roads from crumbling. Right. The gas tax has actually gone down since 1993 because it is a tax on uh, you know gasoline per gallon. But everybody knows that they can drive a lot uh, you know further on a gallon of gas now than they could in the 1970s or 1980s. So the yield from the gasoline tax has gone down. You know, dramatically. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. You mentioned th this notion of having um, cameras in Congress. I, I talked to Brian Lamb, you know, not, not that long ago, who created C-SPAN, and actually asked Lamb, do you think you've made people more combative? I've always thought these are adults. They have been elected by their constituencies. And the constituency and the adults who have been elected ought to be able to figure out how to do this in front of cameras. And keep in mind at all times, that's my money, that's your money, and the people can watch his money. It's $4 trillion worth of tax money, and they ought to be able to do that work in public, except in the case of a national security issue. He's totally right. He's totally right. Hmm. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller talking to Stephen Brill, author of the new book, Tailspin, The People and Forces Behind America's 50-Year Fall and Those Fighting to Reverse It. Um, so let's talk about those efforts to stem what you see as a decline. Um, one of the points that you make is that uh, the steps towards meritocracy that were taken in the 60s and in the 70s, they ended up entrenching kind of this new elite in America. And it was an educated elite that, that secured these great education opportunities for their kids. Uh, you say there are a few colleges that are trying to make sure that elite does not stay entrenched and like, you know, exclude new people. Uh, so let's talk about Amherst College and Baruch College, which you say are making big strides uh, 
Do you want to talk about what they're doing? Well, they're succeeding is what they're doing. Um, in the case of Amherst and a few other elite schools, um, including you know Princeton um, and Vassar, what they decided was, uh, uh, these are the elite schools, what they decided was, you know, they have generous uh, financial aid packages, as does Harvard and Yale. But the difference is they marketed their packages so that a kid who's graduating, you know, as the valedictorian in some high school um, in South Dakota will be marketed and told, you know, believe it or not, you can come to Princeton for free. Uh, whereas, you know, the average person, uh, you know, graduating high school in South Dakota may think, well, you know, it's Princeton, it's got to be more expensive. So, you know, I'll go to the state school and pay the $10,000 tuition when, in fact, they could go to Princeton for free. Mm-hmm. Harvard and Yale do a lousy job at that. Mm. But Amherst and Princeton prove that you can do a good job of it. Now, uh, Baruch College is one of many of, you know, the state um, and city schools in New York and California and elsewhere that do an excellent job not only of, you know, recruiting people and charging them very little money, but having, you know, special programs meant to get them into the middle class when they graduate. And it's really um, a thrilling experience to, you know, walk into the lobby of, of uh, Baruch College and see people, you know, who are the, you know, whose parents are immigrants or cab drivers or whatever, um, really preparing to take, you know, upper middle class entry level jobs. Mm. And they're making it work. Now, the irony is that in the environment we're in today, um, uh, you know, those, uh, you know, state and locally uh, run uh, universities and colleges are seeing dramatic cutbacks in uh, the funding they get, when in fact, enhancing their funding is what we need to restore, uh, you know, the kind of of economic uh, mobility Mm -hmm. that we used to have. And by the same token, we need uh, the kinds of, uh, you know, job training programs that I write about that the federal government has failed at since the 1960s when they promised it. And yet, uh, there are some nonprofits that I write about that are doing a great job and proving it can be done, proving that you can take someone, you know, who's a messenger or a bar bouncer and teach them how to code, uh, you know, software without making them have a college degree. And, you know, they're placing them into these eighty-five and $100,000 a year jobs. It can be done. And the book is all about things like that that not only can be done, but that are being done. How do you prevent, um, you, you know, we talked about sort of the the fact that the, you know, very smart lawyers and very smart people in finance had come up with all these sort of uh, funny little maneuvers to earn themselves more money and kind of slow, slow down the work sometimes, or in the case of finance, maybe speed them up at a, to an unhealthy level. How do you ensure that will not continue to happen? And maybe it will happen in a meritocratic way. Maybe like the best immigrants and the best people out of Brook College and out of Amherst, you know, but will will get get into law schools, you know, in the future. But how do you know that this won't just continue to happen and that we won't be able to like fix roads or have OSHA requirements because like there's just too many barriers in the way? I guess I think I have this, this, this you know, naive optimism that, that this is a resilient country 
and that sooner or later in a democracy, even in a democracy so dominated by money, that people's you know, sheer frustration, sheer disgust with what's going on, is going to force real change. And the people I write about in the book, for the people, for example, the people you know devoted uh, you know to campaign to, uh, you know finance reform, mm-hmm. um, they will have laid the groundwork for the kinds of reforms that suddenly the politicians will have to adopt because people are just so disgusted by money and politics. I mean, the you know the polling on that is totally off the wall. It's so high even now, and I think it's going to get more intense. You know, I think that there's going to come a time when, you know, so many people are calling the Social Security hotline, you know, to complain that they didn't get their checks or mm-hmm. their disability claim was unfairly denied, that, you know, almost like the Arab Spring, you know, people are just going to snap and they're going to say, we can't have this anymore. We can't have a government that ignores us and doesn't work and that only worries about, you know, lowering taxes and reducing services. We are by the way, the lowest taxed industrial democracy out there. We are not overtaxed. Our deficit problem is because we don't tax people at the top anywhere nearly as much as any other country. It is no surprise that you know our uh, mass transit system and our highways you know, are so terrible compared to France or England or Germany or Asia uh, you know, just look at the taxes we pay, or I should say the taxes we don't pay. Is there anything that, like, an ordinary person, even if the ordinary person happens to be, you know, a high-powered lawyer in a firm or a surgeon or something, is there anything that you feel like ordinary people can do while they're waiting for something to change, like while they're waiting for infrastructure to be built and all that? They're increasingly joining and supporting the kinds of groups I write about in the book whether it's a, a, you know, giving money to uh, the job training program I read about in Queens or supporting uh, the bipartisan you know, policy center um, in Washington, which has all these plans on the shelf for how to solve in a bipartisan way the health care issues we have, the infrastructure issues we have. I think that, um, you know, people should, you know, support those kinds of groups or start groups of their own. And that's happening. I mean, you know, the activism that has happened uh, you know, since the 2016 election is, if anything, um, accelerating uh, the worse things get. Stephen Brill is author of the new book, Tailspin, The People and Forces Behind America's 50-Year Fall and Those Fighting to Reverse It. Stephen, thank you so much. Happy to be with you. Thank you again. website, we've got the short version of Stephen Brill's argument, which was recently published in Time Magazine. That's at innovationhub.org. Nearly a hundred years ago, a group of men were part of an experiment. They collaborated on a newspaper, they played together in a jazz band, and they sat through college courses. But the men were not your typical students. They were prisoners at Norfolk State Prison Colony in Massachusetts.
prison and institutionalization can really function as a place to rehabilitate people. Elizabeth Hinton is the author of the book From the War on Poverty to the War on Crime. So that people can reflect on the choices they made to get them into prison in the first place, but also to kind of provide different sets of opportunities so they can go on to become productive members of society. Hinton is also an associate professor of history and African and African-American studies at Harvard. And she says nearly a century later, there's a strong argument for bringing education and enrichment back to prisons. There's never been a prison population like the one we have in the history of the world. Even though we've got less than 5% of the people on Earth, we've got nearly 25% of the prisoners. And that's expensive. Prisons siphon billions away from health care, education, infrastructure. Elizabeth Hinton says this huge prison population also leads to an important question. Because we are such a large incarcerator, how can we provide people who have served time real resources, comprehensive opportunities in order to realize a second chance, or maybe even for many people who are incarcerated, a a real first chance. In Germany, which has reinvented prison to focus more on getting inmates back into society, lots of classes are offered to prisoners. And just one in three of those released from prison are rearrested within three years. Here, the Department of Justice reported that a large-scale study in 2005 showed what happens in America after three years. Instead of one in three former inmates getting rearrested, like in Germany, almost three in four former inmates are rearrested. And when almost everyone who goes out the door ends up coming back in, that's expensive. In the past few weeks, we've seen some strange bedfellows on the issue of education and rehabilitation for prisoners, including Jared Kushner, President Trump's advisor and son-in-law, and many Democrats. Elizabeth Hinton from Harvard says the effect that education can have on prisoners is underestimated, as she heard at a recent conference with men who got their college degrees in prison. One man said, the best day of my life and the worst day of my life was when I received my B.A. because it was the best day of my life. I received my B.A., but it was the worst day of my life because I could no longer take continue taking classes. Her argument is that we should make prisons more like colleges. It would be better for prisoners, for society and for our wallets. People who are incarcerated in the United States also represent typically people who are undereducated. So actually, even more so than race, for all of the kind of gross racial disparities in our criminal justice system, if you education is a far greater predictor of incarceration than race. So if you're a white man without a high school diploma, you are much more likely to end up in prison than a black man with one. And so we can think, okay, here's a group of people who have been, for a number of reasons, systematically denied access to education and unable to support themselves and survive in the formal economy. So we can use the reality of incarceration as an opportunity to address that undereducation and to begin to provide new opportunities for people to use different parts and and realize different talents for themselves. And there's been many studies done, uh, most notably by the RAND Corporation in 2013, that really demonstrates the impact of educational programs on lowering recidivism rates. So people who have access to educational opportunities while incarcerated are 43 percent less likely to recidivate. Mm -hmm. I wonder where the issue of sort of punishment plays in here, because I think a lot of people feel like, look, if this person broke into my house or this person beat up this other person or whatever, they shouldn't go to 
uh, prison and like get educated and join a jazz band. They should go to prison and be punished for breaking into this house or, you know, doing this bad thing that they did. Um, How do you reconcile those two things of people wanting to say this is, you know, somebody who did something bad and they should they should be punished for it, not, you know, have a great college like experience? You know, one of the responses that I got to some of my writing in The New York Times on this issue is, oh, OK, so if my daughter robs a bank, does that mean she can get a free college ed- education? And that's not that logic is just doesn't make any sense. So the question is, what kind of citizens, what kind of society do we want to build? Do we want to deny people access to certain rights like education, like contact with their families, like human touch from loved ones um, because of crimes they've committed? I think that we're beginning to have a national conversation acknowledging the misguided policies of the war on drugs and the, the, the decision to criminalize people who are addicted to drugs and, um, and and drug abuse. And so taking all this into account, again, I think that we need to maybe go back to those earlier models where punishment was not seen or where incarceration was not seen as, as you know, um, retributive punishment, but more as a space where people could be rehabilitated and then return to society even better human beings. So it sounds like you're saying even if we stepped up the number of algebra classes and poetry classes that were being offered – just by being in prison, that's a huge punishment, no matter how much algebra you're taking. Yes. Yes. Okay. There's, there, there's no question that, you know, d- despite what um, some episodes of shows like Orange is the New Black might show, there's nothing that's fun. Anybody who's incarcerated would tell you that being in prison is not a joyful, fun experience. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Elizabeth Hinton, an associate professor of history and African and African-American studies at Harvard, and she wants to rethink the way prisons are run. You mentioned Germany. Let me bring that up because um, we have this kind of model in our mind of what prison looks like, prison in America looks like. Um, But you've got countries that are wildly different. And in Germany, uh, inmates can decorate the rooms as much as they want. They have courses that sound a little bit like summer camp, but painting, pottery, yoga, soccer, crocheting. And as I mentioned, in some ways they save a lot of money because um, many people never come back to prison. They have much, much lower rates of people getting rearrested within three years than we do. Have we learned anything from either models within this country or other countries about like how you reduce the numbers of people that are coming back. Are there better ways of doing prison, even just on a money level, than we are doing it? I hope that we are beginning to look at places like Germany and Norway and Sweden and Israel as models that could be implemented in the U.S. And I think that there are some private foundations like the Veer Institute of Justice who are beginning to to, to do these studies and implement and use what we've seen in Germany and other places as a model um, in in the U.S. I, you know, th- to a certain extent, um, the our our own history of of slavery and racism here, I think, really really shapes the way that we envision punishment and and human rights in general. So one of the things, and this this happens when you're in prison, but also um, after your your release. I mean, this is the new Jim Crow aspect of mass incarceration: is that you lose a certain amount of human of your rights as a human being so that you can't, you, 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 you aren't, some materials are not allowed in the prison. Mm-hmm. Some things you can't put up on the walls. Uh, you can only be out depending on the, on the level of security of the prison and, you know, your own kind of record of behavior within the prison. You can't be out of yourself or, 
um, more than an hour a day um, in some places. So I, I think it's in order for us to really embrace that kind of a of an inclusive rehabilitative model, we're going to really have to kind of shift our views about what punishment should be and what the purposes of our prisons are. So if a governor or a federal official said to you, you know, I hear you, that that all sounds really good. I'm a little worried, though, about making this case to my constituents because I'm worried they'll say I'm soft on crime and, um, you know, I'm giving yoga classes and and calculus classes to, to people who are incarcerated. Uh, how could I make this case to people in a way that uh, might give these policies an actual shot? Well, first of all, I mean, offering not only higher education, educational programs in prison and comprehensive reentry services is cost effective because it lowers the recidivism rate. It's much cheaper to educate people than to incarcerate people. So, so ideally, you get to dial back on the number of prisons right. you have or the number of inmates you have to take care of. Right, exactly. It saves hundreds, millions of taxpayers' dollars um, investing in these kind of uh, programs for people who are incarcerated. So one, it's 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 cost effective. I think one of the biggest challenges we have in general is the ways in which we have decided to allocate resources. And over the past 50 years, and this is the this is part of what I cover in my book, there's been a real disinvestment from social welfare programs and an investment in uh, police and prisons and surveillance measures. And so part of it is thinking about what would a crime prevention program look like that actually invested in underserved and under-resourced public schools in the first place that might give people opportunities and open up minds in a way that would lead them out, you know, to to a totally different path that doesn't involve informal economies or um, or what's seen as crime. So I think part of it is we've got to have a more comprehensive crime prevention program. Um, in terms of actually beginning these programs, a lot of governors, including most notably um, Andrew Cuomo in New York, have you know faced a lot of resistance. And I mm-hmm. think that again, in terms of our values as a nation. Unfortunately, I think it's going to be very difficult for these types of programs, educational programs and prisons to really take off until we begin to rethink our educational system and higher education as a whole. And I think that's part of the reason why, you know, in some Western European countries where everybody can can go to college and 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 continue their education after completing what's equivalent to their high school diploma. And until we begin to fund and offer that for everybody, it's going to be very difficult um, to get the kind of political will that will be necessary to implement these programs in a wi- on a widespread basis in our nation's um, prisons. One of the incredible things in doing research for this segment was I looked at how much uh, a prisoner costs per year in California. It costs about $75,000 to incarcerate somebody, which happens to be almost exactly the tuition of Stanford University, which is also, of course, in California. Um, And it's just this incredible thing that college – this isn't true in every state. Different states have different costs for incarcerating people. But it's incredible that in some states, the cost of college and the cost of prison – is really almost exactly the same, even though those, are, though those are very different experiences. Right. And states like California, my home state of Michigan, Georgia, spend more money incarcerating people than they do on the public school system. So, again, this is a real value shift in the U.S. that I think we've really come to this kind of fiscal disaster with our punishment system and law enforcement in general. And unless we really rethink and shift our priorities, this is it, it's going to continue to be kind of the engine of, of inequality in the U.S. 
what do you see as the direction here? Are there, you mentioned Andrew Cuomo Mm -hmm. in New York, the governor of New York, um, as having, pushing for more education in prison. What do you see? Is there a trend amongst governors? Do you see certain states moving towards this? Or is this still too taboo? Like, you know, you got to offer things to people who haven't committed a crime before you get to the people who have. I think one of the things that is really promising is that colleges and universities are increasingly stepping up to fill this void and kind of begin to redistribute some of the resources that they have. And I think faculty are really interested in in teaching people who are incarcerated and kind of recognize that because mass incarceration is you know, what some say is a civil rights issue of our time, you know, are really trying to use their expertise to fix it. And and because of the restrictions that have been in place since the enactment of the 1994 crime bill, it has really been a private-led effort. And so I think that we're beginning to see elite, you know, universities, Princeton, Yale, hopefully Harvard, stepping up to begin to offer these kinds of classes. And I think that will continue. I fear that if it doesn't, and I think this is part of the reason why some conservative policymakers are supporting um, reinstating Pell Grants for prisoners, is that there's a lot of money to be made in educating people who are incarcerated. So Global Tell Link or GTL, which operates the majority of the um, the telecommunication, so when people who are incarcerated call home, um, spending like $8 for a minute hmm. to talk to their family. So it's a very exploitive and extractive industry. They are, they're already beginning to kind of get in the prison education market and are developing tablets that have thousands of books uploaded onto them so that people who are incarcerated can take online classes. And so I think that there's a strong lobby industry there. And because there's all this potential profit to be made because of the sheer number of people we do incarcerate, unless colleges and universities step up to kind of take control over educational offerings in prison, it will become the kind of common denominator. Um, for prof, a for-profit enterprise that, again, won't really bring the kinds of returns or lead to the kinds of transformations that I think that we would ultimately like to see. Elizabeth Hinton is a scholar. She's written about prisons in America. We will link to her article in The New York Times at our website, innovationhub.org. She's an associate professor of history and African and African-American studies at Harvard. Elizabeth, thanks so much for being here. It's wonderful to, to speak with you. NYU, by the way, is a leader in prison education. They actually have a partnership with a nearby prison which allows inmates to get their writing printed in an NYU newspaper. More about that is also at innovationhub.org. We're going to talk now about decision-making and problem-solving. So let me start right off the bat with a problem about baseball bats. Ready? So a bat and a ball costs a dollar ten altogether. The bat costs a dollar more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? That's Maggie Toplak, an associate professor at York University in Canada. She studies rational thinking. And I'm going to give you that problem again in case it went by a little quickly the first time. You've got a bat and a ball. Together, they cost a dollar and ten cents. The bat is a dollar more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? Feel free to take a second here, because I tried to solve this problem, and it took more than a second. Um, let's see. <laughs> I don't usually do these kinds of things on the radio. Um, okay, so let's see. An, um, 90 plus 10 is not going to work. 95, 
I mm, 95 plus 15 would work. And then, but there wouldn't, um, a dollar. Oh, me, uh, how about a dollar five and five cents? You've got it. That's right. Okay. That is very, actually, a very tricky question. This is a problem that's hard not because of the math skills it uses, which are addition and subtraction, but because of the rationality that is required to tackle it. And I'm actually really glad that you got the wrong answer initially because over 90% of uh, university students in some of the samples we've seen actually get that problem wrong. But uh, the reason that that problem is particularly appealing is it's almost like you have this automatic response of 10 sure. cents, right? And Yeah. And, you know, you think some problems you'd say, oh, well, I don't know the answer to that. It's actually right. fascinating that that you give this automatic answer. And, and right. not only do you give this answer, you think it's right. If you initially thought that the bat was a dollar and the ball was 10 cents, that's because, according to Maggie Toplak, our brains are cognitive misers we tend to default to the most easily computed response or the most easily retrieved response, which often serves us well. But in these types of problems that we're studying, we realize that they don't serve you well and that right, you should right. be calculating a better response. Just about 100 years ago, intelligence tests made a huge splash in America, first for testing soldiers entering World War I, and then as the sorts of IQ tests that we think of today. Toplak is the co-author of The Rationality Quotient Toward a Test of Rational Thinking, which argues we've spent a long time ignoring rationality in favor of intelligence. And it's high time for a rationality test, something she and her colleagues have developed. But isn't being intelligent part of being rational? Don't smart people make more rational decisions? Well, so the data suggests that they do, but the data also suggests that that correlation is very weak. Kerry Morwich is a professor of marketing and a faculty scholar at Boston University. He also studies rationality. And he makes a crucial point. Plenty of smart people aren't that rational, and plenty of rational people aren't that smart. Rationality is its own separate skill, and not having it can have huge downsides, despite the fact that we don't really give it its due. So, how do you know if you are rational? First, if you're not too confident about what you know, that's good. So, for example, weather forecasters actually become, despite like most people's belief, become incredibly accurate at mm -hmm. predicting the weather. Mm -hmm. But if you give them similar kinds of tasks where they have to estimate their so they have to estimate their confidence in their general knowledge of trivia questions, for example, you don't see that transfer from their accuracy mm -hmm. in making confidence judgments about precipitation to confidence judgments about general knowledge. So a weather forecaster tells you they have 90% confidence it's going to rain tomorrow. That confidence tends to be totally supported by the facts. And weather forecasters get percentages. They know when to say they're only 30% sure and when to ratchet it up to 90%. But that confidence when it comes to calibrating percentages only applies to the weather. So if I gave them like 10 questions right. and I say, how many of these questions do you think you got right? They would tend to be just as overconfident as someone who's not used to making these kinds of probabilistic predictions. And Maggie Toplak from York University says, lots and lots of us are overconfident. Being overconfident, that's right. It can lead to, to bad things. And in uh -huh. general, people tend to be more confident than they should. 
Rationality, Morwedge and Toplak agree, involves not jumping to conclusions, like in the bat and ball problem, and instead being able to look at a problem from multiple angles. Which leads me to another test of your rationality. We'll call it the Linda problem. And here it is. Linda is 31 years old, single, outspoken, very bright. She majored in philosophy. As a student, she was deeply concerned with issues of discrimination and social justice, and she also participated in anti-nuclear demonstrations. So now that you know all that stuff about Linda, what's more likely? A, she's a bank teller, or B, she's a bank teller who's active in the feminist movement. What do you think? Well, I know what I think because I teach this example. Sure. That's Carrie Mortwidge from Boston University. To me, there's sort of two parts of the problem. There's one, who does, what does Linda seem like as a person? To what kinds of people does she seem similar? And the second question is a probability question, which is, which is she more likely? And those are two different questions. They have different answers. And, and the second question, the probability question, is harder to answer. The answer to the question of, is Linda more likely a bank teller or a bank teller who's active in the feminist movement, is option one. It's more likely Linda's a bank teller. Why? Well, both options say she's a bank teller. So even if there's a high likelihood she's also an active feminist, it's not 100%. And since there's a 100% chance she's a bank teller, any additional qualifications that you add on to that are going to reduce the chance that Linda will meet those qualifications. So it could be that she's an active feminist or that she likes the color red or that she drives a black car. The more descriptors you add, the less likely she is to fit all of them. Again, there's a math component here. But much of the reason that we get in trouble has nothing to do with math. When you think about Linda, immediately you have a mental image of what she looks like or what she's like as a person. You've encountered people like Linda. And that that mental image maps on much more on to the sort of feminist bank teller representation than the bank teller representation. To use Maggie Toplek's phrase, we're acting like cognitive misers. We're embracing preset notions so our brain doesn't have to do too many acrobatics. Carrie Morwood says he doesn't really like the term cognitive misers because usually such behavior isn't bad at all. We don't really want to assess all the options when it comes to picking out shampoo or finding the best parking space or looking at various colors to paint a room because if we assessed all that stuff, we'd never get anything done. But when it comes to some decisions, cutting to the chase gets us in trouble. I ask most of my students in class, how long do you spend picking out a new laptop? Mm-hmm. And most of them spend multiple hours. And then most of my students, because they're MBAs, have a 401k from their previous employment. And I ask them, how much time did you spend researching all the different kinds of investment options you had, which are going to constitute the crux of their entire retirement savings? And most of them spent less than 30 minutes, right? So that's that's sort of the when we have the, the miser part becomes negative. It's when it has these kinds of negative consequences down the line. That's what's particularly challenging about rationality. Some of our irrationality is rooted in skills that mostly just help us get through the day, except when they backfire. Like, for example, when you interview someone for a job. So the data, for example, suggests that People are actually really terrible at job interviews in terms of from the interviewer's position, right? So you bring in a bunch of candidates. Some look much better and more accomplished. You interview a few people. You really sort of fall in love with one candidate or another based on the interview. And what 
then you sort of justify your decision afterwards. Or maybe you look at the whole picture and you have a candidate that you prefer. What we find is that algorithms tend to do better at these kinds of difficult predictions. So should I hire someone? Who's going to succeed in graduate school? Who's going to be, which prisoner should be paroled? In these kinds of cases, there's a lot of information. And what people do is they're inconsistent in the way that they weight different kinds of pieces of information. So take two job candidates. One person has more programming experience. Another person has a higher GPA, right? So if we would think that you should decide how important is programming experience and how important is GPA in predicting success in this job. Um, uh, an algorithm would weight the two things similarly when they're judging both candidates, but people might weight the GPA higher when one, judging one candidate and the programming experience higher when judging another. And see, you can see there's entire sort of movies based on this, right? Moneyball is all about how terrible people mm-hmm. are at being consistent when looking at baseball players. I, I like Perez. He's uh, got a classic swing. He's real clean stroke. Yeah, I don't know. Well, Can't hit the curveball. Well, there's some work to be done. I'll admit that. Yeah, but there is. Uh, he's noticeable. Got an ugly girlfriend. What's that mean? Ugly girlfriend means no confidence. Like Kevin Euclid, for example. Most people didn't like him because he didn't look like a baseball player, right? Even though he had all the statistics that suggested he'd be a phenomenal baseball player, he still didn't look like one. And so people were had a hard time getting over that kind of discrepancy between what they thought a baseball player looked like and what he looked like. Do you think that is something that often gets in our way when we're trying to be rational, that we think like – hmm, women are like this, or people who went to University of X are like this, or people who have high GPAs. Those are the, I, I like that. Even if there's not a lot of evidence to support that the things that we personally have affinity for ha- are any good at predicting anything about success in the future. Yeah, I, I do think that we tend to find things that we think work, and we marshal a lot of evidence to support those beliefs. And that's partially confirmation bias. That's a tendency when we have a belief about someone or some theory out in the world that we tend to search for evidence to support it and that we tend to evaluate that evidence that we do have as supportive of that hypothesis. So if you think, for example, that um, women might make a better preschool teacher, for example, you might find go and look for cases where there are successful women in this position and there's not successful men. But you'd be less likely to look at the case of how many unsuccessful women are in this position or how many, unsuccess- how, how many successful men are there in this position. Or if people have views of you know, women as CEOs, they might be more likely to look for the negative views of women as CEOs. They might be more likely to look for successful men and unsuccessful women mm-hmm. than look for successful women and unsuccessful men. So it's easy for people to construct these kinds of tests for their theories by looking at selective evidence that supports it. So how do you get out of this irrationality trap? Researcher Maggie Toplak says, let's take the example of a family doctor. Of course, you hope that your family doctor has done great in school and understands anatomy well and all of that. But then if uh, my family doctor was recommending a treatment for me and relied on medical studies conducted with 
thousands of patients in, in deciding on the, the right treatment uh, versus remembering that one patient in his or her 20 years of practice that had this adverse reaction to this particular treatment. Well, I'd want this family doctor to, to rely on the evidence coming from thousands of cases because that's mm -hmm. far more diagnostic. Mm -hmm. Or another example is if I had symptoms that my family doctor had not really seen a lot of before, I would hope that my family doctor wouldn't be overconfident in yeah. his or her advice. I would hope that uh, he or she would, you know, refer me on to a specialist or another colleague who had more experience. And all of those types of things are related to rational thinking. Toplak recently co-authored a paper that found a link between being a more rational person and having more positive real-life outcomes. So for her, getting people to be more rational and helping develop that test for it has real urgency. Rationality, it turns out, may be an aspect of human thinking that up to now we have not measured or cared nearly enough about. Don't know much about history. Don't know much biology. Don't know much about a science book. Don't know much about the French I took But I do know that I love you And I know that if you love me too What a wonderful world this would be We've put together a quiz that will measure your rationality quotient. You can check it out at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovationhubradio. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Solinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help from Chloe Lemelhay and Simone Migliori. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.